Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. This is show number 21. I hope it finds you fit and well and looking forward to the crisp tang of autumn in the air. I have two fantastic stories for you today, so whatever your mood, why don't you sit back, relax, drink where you can reach it? Then let's listen to some stories. First up today is Troll's Night Out by Jenny Blackford. Jenny is an Australian writer and poet whose work has appeared in many places, including Strange Horizons, The Pedestal Magazine and Penumbra. Pamela Sargent called her historical novella set in classical Athens and Delphi, The Priestess and the Slave, elegant. Pitt Street Poetry has recently published an illustrated collection of her cat poems, The Duties of a Cat, a title I simply adore. Her website is jennyblackford.com, she blogs at jennyblackford.livejournal.com, and she tweets as well, at Duties of a Cat. It's read for you today by Catherine Logan. Catherine has many years of training in theatre and voice in her youth, then many years of teaching, acting, drama, writing and English literature as a grown-up. She's taken plenty of workshops and has studio experience in narration, commercial and animation voiceover work. Catherine's now involved in a second career, which takes her back to her first love. And so, here is Troll's Night Out by Jenny Blackford. There was a lot of shrieking and laughing going on at the table behind ours. Girls' night out, I said, and took a good swig of my glass of red. David barked out, what did you say, woman? I shouted this time, hoping to penetrate the restaurant sound barrier. Girls' night out! David snorted. With his impressive snout, that was something. Trolls' night out, more like it, he said. He bared his long white canines in a toothy grin. The comment was typical of the David I'd known and hated before I ran away to Scandinavia. Unfortunately, it's not considered good form to scream at one's ex in a good Melbourne restaurant. Instead, I cut off a piece of my salmon cutlet and stuck it in my mouth fast. The aroma of David's steak was tormenting me. That's not very nice, I said at last, when I could speak without screaming at him. Even for an old wolf like you. So what, he said. I'm not a very nice person. I swallowed my list of pent-up grievances and sighed. I thought we'd agreed that you were going to become a warmer and nicer person. David sneered. His dark unibrow made the expression even nastier. Maybe you agree that I was going to be warmer and nicer. I don't remember any such agreement. 
This would have been before you so heartlessly left me and went jaunting off to Sweden. Yes, I said, heartlessly, unaccountably. No good reason at all. Ha! After all the fights, he knew my reasons well enough. I drank half a glass of red wine in one gulp. At least it was a sturdy South Australian Shiraz, not a watery Pinot Noir. Without conscious warning, the hairs on the back of my neck lifted, and I could feel my cheek muscles trying to bare my teeth in a snarl. David patted my hand and said, Settle down, sweetie. It's okay. It's just two Samoyeds and an Alsatian on the footpath. Nothing to get agitated about. They haven't been washed for a month by the smell of them. He was handling his involuntary physical reactions far better than I was, the bastard. Showing no signs of stress, he said, So this agreement that I was going to become a warmer and nicer person, was I listening at the time? Another fistful of chips disappeared into his maw. The coarse dark hair on the back of his arms poked irrepressibly out of the wrists of his dark grey shirt. Not so long ago, that sight could have made me feel all tender and squishy inside. Well, you seemed to be listening, I said. You were nodding now and then, saying yes and occasionally no, making eye contact and all that. You mean you can do that and not listen? It had been during the last of our many rapprochements. I'd been feeling strangely emotional, sentimental, hopeful, hormonal. He grinned irritatingly. Of course, my dear. It's just a simple, autonomous subroutine. My mind could have been anywhere. Contemplating dinner, thinking about my tax bill, plotting my next play. You travesty of an ex-lover, I said. So much for the meeting of minds. Clearly our relationship had been more about the meeting of bodies. Let that be a lesson to you, of the perfidy of man, he said. He looked at me shrewdly as he cut a bleeding piece of the almost raw center of his enormous steak. You want this, don't you, he said, waving it under my nose. I'd cheerfully have killed for it. No, I said firmly. I'm a vegetarian now. I told you that when I rang. I put a huge piece of salmon into my mouth and chewed like mad. It didn't help much. Eventually I swallowed. A lot can happen in a year. He looked down his long snout at me. I don't know if you notice this, Talia, but salmon don't grow on trees. It was time to change the subject. That girl's night out behind me. Trolls, he said firmly. My blood was starting to boil, despite the cooling influence of the fish. You really are such a bastard, David. You're always so judgmental about people, especially women, he smirked. Well, turn around and take a look at them. Don't be rude. They're just a pack of high-spirited young girls. But I'd seen them as they walked in past our table. In their ones and twos, they were more than just young girls. I was only arguing with him from long habit. David snorted again. Very muscular girls. Maybe they go to the gym together. Look at that one. The girl in the red dress. The fluffy-haired blonde, David said, pointing with his fork at a girl, a woman, at the end of the table behind us. She could be a wrestler with those arms. I swiveled my neck to sneak another glance. Her red dress was a tiny sleeveless thing, and her triceps muscles rippled visibly. Her biceps were stunning. I wondered what it would be like to lick her arms. It would be a smoother, softer experience than it had been with David. Two voluptuous girls with long, straight blonde hair sat on her left, wearing roughly pale violet confections that made the most of their amazing pecs and lats. The girl next to them, with short, spiky dark hair, was even more impressive. I couldn't help myself. How about the deltoids on the one in the sparkly top? Wow! He looked at her, then back at me, and gave his right shoulder a reassuring squeeze with the left hand, as if to check that the muscles were still there. Well, my muscles are bigger. 
"'Not much, proportionally,' I said. "'He looked gratifyingly distressed. "'But how has she done it? "'You know the weights I lift?' "'I pretended to smile. "'Yes.' "'You should have been happy to have a fellow "'who didn't let himself go. "'At least I've always taken care of myself.' "'As I watched, he pulled in the stomach "'which had persistently evaded his best efforts "'towards perfection. "'Yeah, right,' I said. "'He'd driven me mad with his obsession with exercise "'for seven long years, "'up before dawn every day, "'cycling one day, weights the next, "'especially if a first night of a play was coming up. "'No slow mornings of coffee in the papers in bed for us. "'But it was not my problem any more.' more important concerns now. I wiggled my shoulders until the small knot that had developed between them came loose. No wonder I'd needed months of remedial massages in Sweden. David turned back to his oozing steak, then peered at my plate. What's this nonsense with eating fish anyway? He said with a stern look. It's not right or proper for people like us. You're not trying to deny your heritage, are you? He wiggled his one long eyebrow to underline the word heritage. So he's back at that again, I thought. I sighed as deeply as I could manage and tried to look put upon. Look, David, I don't want to deny anything, but I don't have to give in to it. I can fight it. And when I called you, I told you I've gone off red meat. That's it. End of argument. For months now, I hadn't been able to bear the thought of benefiting from the killing of my fellow mammals. Each of them was somebody's furry, milk-drinking baby. But I hadn't had to sit at a dinner table and watch anyone eat steak oozing delicious juices, either. "'You're not going soft on me, are you?' he said. "'That's not like the delightfully predacious tally I remember,' he gave a wolfish grin." "'No, I know what it is. "'It's just because you put on weight, isn't it? "'You've gone veggie to lose weight. "'Actresses do that all the time.' "'As he sniggered, I considered punching his long designer's stubble jaw. "'The restaurant owner would understand if I told her, "'as long as it was a her. "'You insufferable,' he interrupted me. "'Not that it's a bad thing,' he winked theatrically. "'Your tits look great, sweetie.' I was briefly distracted from my building fury by the waiter walking past, taking another huge platter of food to the girls' night-out table. It was piled with ladies' fingers, those long, thin, Middle Eastern pastries stuffed with spicy minced lamb. The smell was torture. "'But how did you manage to get so much of the added weight to go up top?' David asked. "'Surely you wouldn't have had a breast-op.' He'd pushed me to the limit. I snapped. You're right, you know. They are trolls. His mouth hung open. It was not a pretty sight. Given that he was temporarily speechless, a rare and welcome event, I went on. Well, not adult trolls yet, not quite. They're troll nymphs, a few years from metamorphosis. Trollettes, he said with an evil grin. "'Troll nymphs,' I said firmly, keeping the conversational upper hand as long as I could. "'It's dark outside, so they can leave home without getting turned into stone. "'But they won't be able to come out to places like this much longer. "'Around the time they turn thirty, the metamorphosis starts. "'In a couple of years, most of them won't even be able to get through the door. "'They'll be huge, like sumo wrestlers, only bigger. "'And the camouflage will kick in,' he sniggered. They'll develop baggy green uniforms. Don't be frivolous, I snapped. This is serious. They're evolved to blend into mountains. They'll look like a heap of rocks most of the time. If you saw the group of them moving, they'd look like a small landslide. In winter in Europe, they'd be paler like ermines to blend into the snow. I hoped I was making an impression on David with this disgraceful breach of the secrecy agreement I'd signed. "'What a heartbreaking story,' he said. "'Gloriously nubile muscular treats one minute, "'bolder like monsters the next. "'Are you sure they're really trolls? "'I was just indulging my well-known mordant wit.' "'He put on the facial expression he used "'for photographs of himself as a semi-famous playwright. "'One side of the unibrow lifted, the other lowered. "'I tried not to laugh. "'I'm absolutely sure, David.' 
deciding that I might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb, I carried on breaching secrecy. I'd feel bad about it in the morning, but right then I didn't care. Anything to score another point. They're definitely troll nymphs, I said. I worked with them in Scandinavia. There's something subtle about the proportions of their arms and legs. Nothing crude. It's not like their knees are on backwards or anything, but the bones aren't quite human either. Once you've studied them, it's unmistakable. And the endocrine system is fascinating. Even the blood is incredible. I'd seen a lot of blood in my life, mostly through a microscope. But I'd never seen blood quite like that before I went to the Institute in Sweden. I'm impressed. So, you actually did something useful after you deserted me. Surprisingly, even shockingly, he truly did look impressed. Thanks, I think, I said. And be careful around them, you old wolf. Gloriously nubile or not, they're more dangerous than ever at this stage. I glanced back at their table. The huge platter of ladies' fingers was empty already. They're highly evolved predators with an amazing sense of smell, and they have to eat enormous amounts to fuel the metamorphosis. They've certainly been tucking into the food tonight. This from a man who'd practically inhaled a huge steak and a mound of chips. And you know their favorite food, don't you, David? It was so nice, knowing more than Mr. Know-it-all about something other than the endocrine system. Shock me, he said, with a devil-may-care, man-of-the-world look. They're a protected species in Scandinavia, but it's kept very quiet. They're isolated in the mountains in a secret spot, or they'd be exterminated in weeks. Vigilantes would hunt them down. The people have long memories there. Cut to the chase, he said. He hated any conversation he didn't dominate. Their favorite food is... I didn't want to lose the upper hand now. Human flesh, David. The younger and sweeter the better. Babies, if they could catch them. Back in the old days, you didn't let a child wander too near a heap of rocks, just in case it wasn't really a heap of rocks. I ruined the effect by shuddering involuntarily. I simply wasn't the woman I used to be. For the first time in the evening, he looked genuinely excited. Really? No wonder they starred in so many fairy tales. Kids love that stuff. He'd made most of his income over the years in plays for schools. Yeah, human nature never changes. Kids have always loved disgusting, scary things. Things like you, I thought. They're revolting beasts, he said. He leaned across the table, his brown eyes gleaming. Children, I mean, not trolls. I'm assuming that the trolls can't help themselves. They'd be acting instinctively at the mercy of their genetic coding. However much of a monster I might be, at least I don't go in for human babies. Despite myself, I almost laughed. You're well known to detest them, in fact. But that was enough talk of trolls and babies. The conversation could take far too many dangerous turns from here. More importantly, I felt the unmistakable tug of duty. I had to be home by 10 p.m., alone. The gods were with me. At that moment, the waiter came to take our plates, and I distracted David with the help of the cakes on display in the big glass case at the back of the restaurant. But I knew that getting rid of him wouldn't be easy. He'd want to come home with me for coffee. Several cups of coffee, in fact. A brandy or two. And despite everything, he'd try to talk me into bed. Despite everything, I might even have been tempted. If I let it get that far. I gulped my chocolate cake down in four or five huge, delicious mouthfuls. I suspect David wolfed his in one big bite. I couldn't bear to look. Cruelly, he asked, what would you do if they discovered that the cocoa bean could feel pain? Would you give that up, too? That's a moral dilemma for another meal, I said, and placed notes on the table for more than my share of the meal. I wasn't almost famous like him, but at least I had a steady income. I stood up and walked to the door, talking over my shoulder as I went. Gotta go, sweetie. Lovely catching up. Must do it again soon. Bye. He just sat there staring. I was into my car in seconds and off.
Once I was home, I sat in the old blue car for a moment, relieved to have escaped so simply. I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd tried to follow me, but there was no sign of that. I was in perfect time for the 10 p.m. feed. Inside the house, I paid off my elderly babysitter and carried the sleeping babies from their big cot out to the glassed-in room at the back of the house. The light of the full moon streamed through the floor-to-ceiling windows. The boys woke and started mewling with hunger. Their vigorous little bodies knew it was time for food. I lay back on the huge, squashy sofa and stripped down for action. Then I carefully attached a soft, sleepy, hungry baby to each nipple. Once they were suckling steadily there in the moonlight, I allowed my body to relax at last into an animal languor. It was such a relief. The twins took no notice. They loved me with four paws and eight teats, just as much as they loved the version with two legs and two breasts. But then I heard the crunch of dead leaves outside. My senses have always been sharp, but they were amplified by motherhood, doubtless to help me protect the young. I looked out carefully. Something was trying to conceal itself between the huge, deep green camellia bushes. It was a troll nymph, there in my backyard in the moonlight. The dark-haired girl in the sparkly top. My lupine instincts took over. She was a danger to my young. The hair at the back of my neck bristled, and I made a guttural noise deep in my throat. It felt good. I went further. I stood on all four paws over my babies and howled a loud warning to the predator. The twins lay under me, reaching upwards for a teat like the famous bronze babies in Rome. The fact that I was standing on the sofa may have undercut the iconic nature of the tableau somewhat, uh, but that was not my problem. From out in her hiding place, the troll nymph saw that I'd spotted her. She looked up startled. Anifrid, I growled. My hearing is too sharp for me not to have caught her name over dinner. Can I come in, she said. Please, I'd like to talk. She looked at me a little guiltily. A child caught out doing something silly, not a predator caught in the act. I sniffed very carefully, checking the tiniest nuances of her smell. The air was deliciously full of fascinating pheromones, not human and not wolf. With difficulty, I started to pull myself together. Transmuting from human form into wolf was all too easy, but it took a huge effort of will to melt back into the soft human form, especially in the moonlight. Growling gently, I worked through the whole painful process and reflexively pulled a few clothes on. The twins started to whine with frustration. All right, Anifred, I said at last. Come in. The back door is not locked. I'd known since adolescence that I could take care of myself. As long as I didn't come across too many mad peasants with silver bullets and no one had cause for revenge, I'd never so much as tasted human meat. The whole idea had always made me nauseous, even before I got myself pregnant. Apart from any moral questions, it was so shockingly unhygienic. You never know where people have been. The troll nymph walked in, looking tentative. Her deltoids shimmered prettily in the moonlight, and her top sparkled. So did her dark-lashed blue eyes. "'May I hold one of them, please?' she asked, glancing at the twins. The wolf in me wanted to growl, but I knew that Anifred was taking her medication. I could smell it in her sweat. I handed Remus to her. She held him clumsily, as if he might explode. "'It's so little,' she said. "'Hardly even a mouthful.' The window over the sink shattered, and a graying middle-aged wolf leaped over the kitchen bench and straight at Anifred. He pushed her to the ground and stood over her throat. She managed to keep hold of the writhing, screaming baby. Her muscles were mercifully useful as well as decorative. Romulus in my arms and Remus in hers both started to howl. Their lung capacity is excellent and their ancestry appropriate. The noise was indescribable. David! Down! David! I shouted. Don't you dare hurt my baby! 
I dropped Romulus on the sofa, snatched Remus from Manifred with my right arm, and pushed David's snout away from her throat with my left. He snarled at me. As I scrambled onto the sofa with my two babies safely in my arms, David threw back his head and howled. All the dogs in the neighborhood, as well as my twins, joined in. Stop the histrionics at once, you middle-aged thespian, I said. Can't you see she's not resisting? Get off her this instant and transform back. He snarled at her and me then and growled a few times but finally complied. His clothes must have been lying in a heap somewhere, wherever he'd changed, so I passed him the sofa throw. He knotted it around his thickened waist. As soon as he was decent and his vocal cords had settled in, he started shouting back at me. What do you think you're doing, woman? You should be thanking me for rescuing you and those babies of ours that you'd so treacherously kept secret from me. How could you? Stop jumping to conclusions, you egocentric idiot, I shouted. What makes you think they're anything to do with you? He'd never wanted children. He wasn't going to claim my gorgeous babies now. He took no notice. I knew something was up at the restaurant. You didn't smell right. You're lucky I followed you to find out what you were so eager to get back to and caught her in the act. She's a troll nymph. She's just here to eat our babies. Why aren't you doing anything about it? By this time, I'd reattached the twins to my leaking nipples, which had the great virtue of stopping the baby's ear-splitting howling. My babies, I said, not ours, and glared at him. And you're wrong about Anifrid, too. Maybe you should have snooped around outside the window a bit longer before you leaped to conclusions about what she was doing. I nodded to Anifrid, hoping that she'd take the hint and explain herself. Actually, I came here to thank you, Talia, she said. You changed our lives. Those trials you were doing in Sweden, the pills you were testing on my relatives, are wonderful. They really work. She waved happily towards the twins, still sucking away. Even the smell doesn't tempt me. Your babies are perfectly safe for me. She beamed, clearly overcome with joy. Ah, oh, it wasn't just me. It was the whole team, I said, blushing modestly. Then I looked David in the eye. She's talking about a new medication for troll nymphs to suppress the desire for human flesh. That's what I was working on when I was in Sweden, the clinical trials. David sat on the Turkish rug, exuding disbelief, but speechless for the moment. I'm so pleased the medication really works, I said to Anifrid, with perfect sincerity. I'd have hated to have been forced to kill you. Actually, I wasn't sure who would have won in a serious match between wolf woman and troll nymph, but I wasn't going to let on. Anifrid gushed on. I was so proud, just being in the same restaurant. My group, we all had a wonderful night. I felt all warm and runny inside. David just rolled his eyes. That wasn't a coincidence, was it? I said to Anifrid. A group of wild trolls in inner Melbourne? She shook her head and gave a rueful half-smile. No, most of us live up in the Dandenongs. Elfrida and Birgit flew down from Sydney. There's a lesbian colony up in the Blue Mountains. Troll males are almost always solitary and brutish, though enormous. Heterosexuality should never be assumed among female trolls. Elfrida and Birgit. They were the pair in the matching satin frills, I asked. She nodded and said, We've been monitoring your email since you got back to Australia. Sorry about that. She scuffled her feet uncomfortably while I tried to look impassive. Soon she went on. Well, our relatives in Sweden had told us about you, and we all wanted to see you, all of us who could pass for human. Oh, I said. Anifred looked serious. It's very important to me. I lost my mother that way. She snatched a human toddler when I was just a baby. They came for her with machine guns and hand grenades. Afterwards, my older sister smuggled me out here to Australia. She's changed now, poor Agnetha. She can hardly talk any more. Tears were glistening in her huge blue eyes. Trolls were formidable after metamorphosis, but they lost easy use of many of their higher functions. David finally spoke up. 
And you all just happened to choose the night Talia deigned to see me after a whole year. And she'd left me when she was pregnant with our sons, without even having the courtesy to tell me she was pregnant. Great timing, both of you. My babies, I said again. Not your babies or our babies, you horrid man. You don't even like babies, remember? Just for once, this isn't about you. I think it is, actually, he said, with a smug, almost smile. Whose babies could they be if they're not mine? I'm sure they've got my eyes. They're exceptionally handsome little creatures. For babies. Everything was always about him. I've told you already, they're mine. They're only eight weeks old. Do the maths, David. His long, single eyebrow tilted. So you got pregnant in Europe a few weeks after you left me. You said there wasn't anyone else. Would you care to explain just how this happened? Artificial insemination? Immaculate conception? David had quite graciously helped me pack up and leave him. After seven years of squabbling interrupted only by more serious fights, I diagnosed mildly dented pride rather than heartbreak. It's absolutely none of your business, I said. I think it's time you went home now. I've got to put the twins to bed. I wanted to mention the bill for mending the smashed window, but he'd have stayed all night arguing that it was merely a byproduct of his heroism and that I ought to welcome him back to my bed in heartfelt gratitude. And I bet you called them Romulus and Remus, he said with a sly smile. Male twins of uncertain parentage, right? Possibly semi-divine and suckled by a wolf. He knew me far too well. I prevaricated. Why would you think that? Well, what else would you call them? Tom and Jerry? Not my inventive Dahlia. Now more than ever I knew that I had to change their names to something plainer and more child-friendly before they got to kindergarten, or they would be social pariahs. After much nagging, David loped off into the night alone, leaving me and Annifred with the twins. I handed Romulus to Annifred, and we walked upstairs together and tucked the two boys into their big cot. When David was out of earshot, which took quite a long time with a wily old wolf like him, Annifred asked, They are his, aren't they? Yeah, you can smell it. She nodded. Troll senses are even better than wolf senses. Their natural environment is harsher. I said, They're five months old, really, not eight weeks. But he wouldn't know the difference. I only found out I was pregnant when I was working in the Institute with your relatives. He'll work it out eventually. He's not stupid, and they really have got his eyes. I hoped quietly that they wouldn't get his dark unibrow. She looked baffled. But why don't you want to tell him now, she said. Human males bond strongly with their young, don't they? Yeah, mostly. But David would be a terrible father. He'd probably run away to Europe if I told him they were really his. On the other hand, he'll make a fantastic Uncle David for little boys. All care and no responsibility. Hunting lessons in the backyard, chasing grasshoppers and beetles. They'll all have a ball. While I was trying hard to be casual, Annifred was looking at her feet, sheepishly. What's up, I said. She looked at me through her long, feathery eyelashes. Hey, would you mind if... I mean, can I... Um, is it all right if I sleep on your sofa tonight, Talia? I missed my lift back to the hills, coming here. I almost asked her to share my bed. My tongue itched to lick those rippling deltoids. But it had been a stressful evening, and I needed a few hours' sleep before the 4 a.m. feed and the 7 a.m. alarm clock. Sure. I led her to the linen cupboard for sheets and blankets. She stood very close to me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
her fascinating inhuman smell surrounded me. I breathed deeply and smiled, but there was no hurry. Annafred and I could have a few good years together before she started to change into an adult troll. I could smell it in her endocrine mix. And there was something that none of the researchers had wanted to tell the trolls until we were absolutely sure. The medication we'd been testing didn't just take away the desire for human flesh. It actually seemed to delay the metamorphosis. Annafred would have a choice. She didn't have to turn into an aphastic pile of rocks. With luck, she could stay gloriously nubile for as long as she wanted. As she kissed me goodnight, sweetly and gently, I passed my right hand lightly over her shoulder. Her deltoids felt as good as they looked. A few minutes later, in bed, alone, I set my mind to work towards a happy future for us all. What could I rename the twins? Castor and Pollux? No, that would be even worse. Tom and Jerry? No. Ben and Jerry? No. Bing and Bob? No. This story made me smile, and then smile again when I realised what was actually going on. Thanks to Jenny Blackford for letting us produce it. And now it's time for the second story. It's called We Sleep on a Thousand Waves Beneath the Stars, and it's by Brendan Connell. I've had this story in the queue for a long time, and today seemed like the perfect chance to play it. Brendan Connell was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1970, he has had fiction published in numerous places, including McSweeney's, Adbusters, and the world fantasy award-winning anthologies Leviathan and Strange Tales. If you look at the Farfetched Fables website, you can find a list of his published works, and he is quite prolific. You can find out more at brendanconnell.wordpress.com. It's narrated today by Matthew Fredrickson. Matthew is in his mid-thirties, living in Memphis, Tennessee, with a rock star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time. He loves to brew beer, and he'd love to make that his career. It rhymes, too. He will soon start the second season of his podcast, Freddy's Fan Fiction. You can find him on Twitter as at Swami. And so, here it is. One. White-hot sand strewn over with shells and then a great sweep of green, an island rich in vegetation, investigation revealing all sorts of tropical fruits, some of which the crew was familiar with, while others none of them had ever seen before, in the shape of stars, swords, and crescents. Large, brightly plumed parrots squawked in the trees, and small brown-furred monkeys leapt from branch to branch and chattered, while from the depths of huge ferns, the height of a man, came the pleasant scent of land. Welcome indeed to those who had been six continual weeks aboard a ship after being thrown off course by a storm. It seemed like an ideal place to gather in supplies. There was a freshwater lagoon in which fish swam and octopuses clung to the rocks. Dozens of giant land tortoises sat on the beach. There were groves of coconut trees. Some men were sent to gather fresh water, some breadfruit. Six tortoises had been slaughtered for their afternoon meal and sent into the interior to see what hunting could be done, while Lamotte, ship cook, a short, round, balding man with sensual lips and lively eyes, prepared two giant fires, one for his cauldron, the other for his weighty cast-iron skillet. After bleeding the turtles, removing the entrails and assiduously trimming away the fat, he braised their flesh and then set it to simmer with a little claret, bay leaves, and various spices. With sweat pouring down his face, he stood, legs somewhat apart, stomach stuck forward, going about his art as if he had been in some famous Paris kitchen, cooking for lords and ladies, instead of on an island, he knew not where, using his skills to feed thieves and cutthroats. Late in the afternoon, a number of shots could be heard in the distance. It sounds like they are having some luck with the game, Lagoverde, first mate, a 
quinquagenarian and Italian, a man with a long, thin jaw, said, Lamont, it would be nice if they were to bring in an eater of ants or a few monkeys, for such a variety of cutlet would augment the meal nicely. For me, I am happy as the sun with a plate of simple seafood, and, indeed, though I like flesh meat well enough, I am always happiest with haddocks, oyster pies, or a plate of sweet periwinkles. Then you have chosen the correct career, the cook said, his words peppered with the vaguest hint of hauteur. For in truth we have eaten little more than bream, cod, and flour for the past fortnight. A sailor's life. One might as well call it the life of a madman. What I would not give to be able to press my lips against a white young lettuce every now and again. A figure could be seen making its way along the beach toward the cook site. Long strides, the sun to his back, his own shadow preceding him. Any luck, Captain? Indeed I have, the latter said, opening his sack. I have captured a crab criard, which cries like a little cat, a hermit crab hosting a caliactus tricolor and a few interesting echinoderms. The rocky shoals at the far end of the beach are rich with the diversity of life. This individual, who was addressed as captain, and therefore we must assume was in a position adjudicative and determinative over others, merits a description. Extraordinarily tall and thin, his head was crowned by a thick, full-bottomed white wig, somewhat the worse for wear. His face, remarkably pale for someone who had spent a great deal of time sailing in tropical climates, was like the skull of a horse, and his lips seemed to sit in a perpetual frown. He wore a collarless gray coat with deep cuffs and a long overcoat, both lined with gray, and black breeches, white stockings, and shoes with large brass buckles. His name was Nikola Bruerovich. The dish was just then beginning to let off a strong and pleasant aroma which stretched itself out on the air, journeyed to lagoon and jungle and tickled the nostrils of the crew and made those fellows agitate their legs in the direction of the little beach camp. A mass of accent colors, blonde beards and long wispy black mustaches, bright red sashes and brown jack boots. Semi-aniline faces embossed with carefree grimaces, some men with willow legs, some with spruce, others with legs of oak. Strong, burly-knuckled fellows able to stand their ground against hurricanes or men. There was Bull Milo, a fellow of little intelligence but great strength. Amrafel, who wore a beard long and sharp as a pike. And Martini, a small Italian remarkably skilled with a blade, as well as a great diversity more, from the rough finished to those with polished foreheads and sharp teeth. Then, from out of the jungle, came the others, the hunting party, their faces eaten by grins, sabers waving in hands, muskets prodding five small beings. Hollering and laughing, these men walked forward with a group of natives between them. In palmetto skirts, long, oily hair brushed forward so as to completely obscure their faces. Lamont opened his eyes wide. The captain frowned. The men gather round in interest, laughter, and jests. Let's bake them like apples. No, we'll have Lamont fricassee them. The girl looks tasty enough to eat raw. And then? They have something on their bellies, it seems, one individual said. A tattoo, a scar. He pressed his finger to an old man's stomach and then let out a cry, for the thing had opened up, like the mouth of a shark showed two rows of jagged teeth, bit off the tip of the finger, a splash of orange, and then the wounded pirate, frenzied, cutlassed the native, and blood excited the desire for more blood, crewmen joining in to slaughter, exterminate those with the long, oily hair, sound of pistols, thrust of blades, till, in just minutes, all but one lay wasted, bleeding on the sand. Stop! the captain cried. You men who spend your lives searching for treasure— do you not see what we have before us is a treasure in itself? I want this interesting specimen kept alive, for I believe it is worthy of study. A small female sat quivering in the sand, in the midst of the corpses of her people. 2. One might ask how it was that so many rough men were obedient to this rather decayed-looking gentleman. The answer was quite simple. He was both cruel and generous. He never took a larger share of loot than his men, 
having the said loot divided equally amongst all. In the same way, he never ate better food than the rest, yet he was exacting in his demands for discipline. The slightest breach of conduct would have him blow out the brains of the offender. It must also be said that he did not lack bravery, for during assaults he did his part, coolly and methodically killing men as if he had been gathering specimens from a tide pool. He had never been known to laugh, smile, cry, or raise his voice in anger. If he raised his voice at all, it was only to be heard. He seemed a man totally devoid of emotions. He had been born in the Republic of Ragusa, brought up watching the ships in the harbor, the water splash against the rocky shore. As a young man, he had studied in the University of Padua, where he distinguished himself by writing a 4,970 Latin verse epic in the Dactylus Hexameter on the Lunar Eclipse, a work of technical excellence, though dry in the extreme. He fought several duels and dabbled in invention, map-making, and botany. Later, he had spent fourteen years sailing the known world, composing a work on tides which, when it was finished, was promptly condemned by the Most Holy Roman Church for certain theories it set forth that were at odds with the idea of a single supreme creator and ruler of the universe. Treated with sudden disdain by the higher ranks of society, met with silence by comrades in science, he swore off the world, procured a ship, gathered together a crew of desperate but for the most part intelligent men, and set out to make his fortune. 3. Swimming amidst creeping Ludwigia and undulated crypt, schools of dazzling fish gazed up at the jolly boat as it coasted from shore to ship and ship to shore, supplying, holds soon stocked with about fifty living land tortoises which could be kept alive and killed as needed, thus offering a steady supply of fresh meat. Also brought aboard were about four hundred coconuts and numerous other fruits and a good supply of fresh water. Then a fragrant breeze filled the sails of the Sparrow, a miraculous ship, a sloop, an incredibly fast vessel with pontoons of coconut shell fiber attached to its sides, making it almost impossible for it to sink even during the most raging of storms, and it skimmed over the ocean, behind it a group of fins following for many a league. 4. The captain was working on a tract entitled a catalogue of sea-waters, their moods, and concomitants. "'Come in,' he said brusquely, not even lifting his head from the page he was vigorously covering with lines of fine handwriting. The door opened, and Lagoverde entered the small and crowded cabin. On one wall was attached a table of trigonometry next to a huge thermometer. Shelves were stuffed with books and manuscript pages, and scientific apparatus were stored on every side. Versorium nestling against Circumventurer, Anonius in one corner, in another stood a dusty, neglected looking-glass. She has been cabined separately as you requested, and, God willing, she will not lead them into any kind of monstrous temptation. Anyone who attempts to violate her will be flogged to pudding. I'll let that be understood. And how is she behaving? Well, she refuses to so much as touch her hammock, preferring instead to crouch in a corner on a pile of straw like a beast, her tongue hanging out over her stomach. She cries a great deal and spat out the cooked food offered her, but became ravenous at the sight of raw tortoise entrails, and seemed to relish a few fresh guavas that Lamotte put before her. Have Lamotte shave her head, and tell him to be quick about it as I want to examine her cranium, which seems surprisingly healthy, this very evening. 5. Later, Captain Bruerovich, as he said, went to examine the creature. With her head now shaven, her already large eyes appeared even larger. He was surprised by the delicacy of her skin. Touched her face and noticed that it excited the action of her larynx. Touched her cranium. Took note of all the surface peculiarities— letting his long, thin fingers, nimble as wasps, travel from the ethmoid bone to the mandible, and then back to the sphenoid. Around the lofty heights of his mind, thoughts gathered, dispersed, gathered again like drifting clouds, infamy slaughtered by fame. The discovery caged, displayed throughout the capitals of Europe, 
astonishing princes and princes-elect, loosening their purse strings while making the women of court squeal like mice. The captain spent the following days in assiduous study of the creature. The desk in his cabin was strewn with notes, measurements, diagrams. Nature, hereditary, has fitted her with a most unusual structure, and I must ask myself why. Gauge her jaw, assess her limbs, try and determine along Anaximandarian lines by what transmutation she had come into being, if there was any possibility of a common progenitor. 6. A ship to larboard, Captain. What variety of ship? A galleon. Nationality? She's flying a Portuguese flag. The captain finished the sentence he was writing, placed his grey goose quill pen back in its holder, rose from his seat, and made his way on deck. "'What do you think?' he asked Lagoverd. "'It is a large vessel.' "'Indeed, and undoubtedly holds booty to match its size. "'But it is clearly a risky enterprise. "'There must be three men to every one of ours aboard her.' "'True enough, but our men are restless. "'If we pursue the prize, they will fight hard. "'If we forego it, they might turn morose.' Yes, they are thirsty for blood. First we must cripple this oversized bastard, the captain said, and then to his chief gunner. Jacques, cut away its masts. The sparrow was armed with nine bronze cannons, a few of these ornately decorated with scrolls and escutions. The gunners worked off a guidance table that the captain had written up, using chain-shot to take down the rigging of the ship, after which they fired carcasses, incendiary ammunition in excess of forty rounds per gun until they were no longer safe to load. It was then that they boarded, faced the odds of over two hundred to their seventy, the deck a veritable hell. The captain calmly ran his cutlass through one man, exploded his pistol at another. Fire danced on all sides to a chorus of screams and curses. Heads tumbled from shoulders, and limbs and bursts of blood went flying from trunks. Faces distended in horror, some men were thrown overboard to be swallowed by the waves, others butchered on the spot. A Portuguese grimaced so that his gums could be seen. Bull Milo, wielding a large axe, lopped off his left arm, while nearby one of the crew of the Sparrow felt a projectile take off one of his ears. A far better fate than that of the first mate of the galleon, who, moments later, had a bullet shatter his skull. Captain Nikola Bruerovich nodded his head in approval, looked to his left and saw Mademoiselle Savage standing before him, a huge knife in her hand, her arms flecked with blood. Their eyes met for a moment. Then our hero turned and continued his methodical work of exterminating all resistance aboard the ship, after which, the deck having been made slippery with gore, the hold was inspected, good quantities of minted silver and cochineal, as well as other items of value. That night, while the men were celebrating their victory and mourning the death of their shipmates, both functions requiring the playing at reverse Diogenes, barrel and stomach rather than stomach and barrel, the captain stayed sequestered in his cabin. The next day the crew were cheerful, singing and joking while they went about their tasks, for the voyage was now turning profitable. But the captain seemed downcast his frown longer than usual, his manners more clipped. His soup that day he barely touched. Of claret he took two cups. 7. Lagoverd was presented with a sight that surprised him. The looking-glass, long neglected, was now hung, its surface polished, prominently on one wall where the table of trigonometry had once been. The captain himself had no time for talk, for he was busy, washing his wig— the first mate scratched his long chin, made his way to the kitchen. Lamotte sat with a length of light blue silk on his lap, a needle in hand. "'What are you doing?' the Italian asked. "'Making a set of female garments.' "'Eh? And who, pray tell, are they for?' "'Well, the only femme on board, obviously. Captain's orders. It seems her grass skirt has gone out of fashion.' Lagoverd went on deck. Who would have believed it, he murmured to himself, gazing out at the bloody sun as it descended beneath the waves. 8. As bizarre as their romance might have seemed, it was fitting, 
for no mortal woman could have ever thawed the rigid ice of Bruerovich's heart, the task being reserved for something else, a specimen, a dark cave full of slime and spiders for the first time flooded with light, and a strange but true fact. The most violent passions are often between beings who share no common language. The crew did not laugh or joke over the matter, for they knew well enough how lonely the life of a sailor was, and there was a certain pathetic element in this high seas romance which made them silent on the subject, their lips sealed by a mixture of awe and pity, maybe even fear. And it is often difficult to say why one being is attracted to another, and why it is that every man, at some point in his life, will fall in love. There was not a great outward change in the captain's behavior. He was still rigid as ever, his lips still as unsmiling, but behind the closed door of his cabin those slender strips of flesh became tender. It was during this period that, casting their fishing nets, the pirates pulled up from the sea a strange creature, a serpent with a head that closely resembled that of a human child. Lamotte diced it into sections and served it, batter-fried, for lunch. 9. The weeks that followed were prosperous, full of butchery, fire, and shrieks. The ship flew past cone-shaped islands, glided along the rippling scales of the sea, skimming over white horses and dyeing them red with foaming blood, the crew happily indulging in despicable behavior. They attacked no less than seven ships— Two Dutch, a Spanish, a French, two English, and another Portuguese, divesting them of gold and silver, cochineal and indigo. It seemed that the native girl had brought them good luck. The captain had taught her to use pistols and given her a brace of them, and these were stuffed into a sash of bright blue silk which was wrapped below her mouth, around her thighs. She wore a pair of loose-fitting, brightly-colored trousers, a brocade vest, parrot green in color, and a tasseled hat shaped like the roof of a pavilion. And she, in these adventures, would always become excited, homicidal, a terror to those poor souls attacked, for to them it seemed truly as if they were being confronted by maniacs and monsters, a band come from hell. She found a certain ecstasy in extreme violence. During one assault she jumped on a man, straddled his neck, and choked him to death with her thighs. On another occasion she was caught gnawing on a human foot, but this in no way disgusted the captain. Possibly he even found it charming, as lovers often do the foibles of their beloved. And on those days when the fighting was most ferocious, the native girl's appetite for love was most keen, and Bruerovich, trembling, pressed his lips to those hands, beneath the nails of which might have been found deposits of human flesh. 10. Dark gray. Steady, light precipitation. She leaned against the gunwale, her eyes gazed off, dreamy, letting her body absorb the drizzle which ran over her face, made her clothes cling tightly to her lithe form. When it rained, she was always like that, lost to the world, absorbed in nature, and the captain kept his distance, being to some degree odd, and later, glancing in her eyes, he thought he could make out faraway vistas, Palm fronds, mysterious sun-drenched beaches on which beings swirled together in worship of the waves, an enigma his analytical mind refused to confront, for Mademoiselle Savage was an odd mixture of boldness and shyness, brutal enthusiasm and sadness. She could scratch and bite, but also hug tenderly. She carried with her some primordial inscrutability, was a path which led back to those days of formless void, Waters under heaven and boiling rock when the world was born. "'What do you make of her?' Lamotte one day discreetly asked of the first mate. "'She is an animal picked up from the islands.' "'Which means?' "'Just that.' Eleven. A dead calm. Evening. The captain stood on deck, gazing out at a purplish sunset, Lagavered by his side. I think this will be my last voyage. Indeed. Indeed. You are retiring, then? I have always thought Greece would be a nice place to go, to live peacefully, to study the marine life there while walking over the land once inhabited by Pythagoras and Sophocles. It was at this point that their discourse was cut short by the approach of Martini. 
Pierre, the powder monkey, is ill, the latter said. It is probably simply a bileless complaint caused by some bad piece of fish Lamotte served, was Breverevich's comment. It is not the kind of sickness the boy has. He has a fever. The captain and his first mate went to investigate, saw the boy lying in his hammock, face glistening with sweat. He was racked with pain and coughed violently. How long have you been feeling ill? the captain asked. I haven't been quite myself for the past few days, the patient murmured. If you have something that would make me feel better. Nikola Bruerovich examined his body, saw the rash on his chest. It is typhus. This is bad, Lagoverd said. Yes, it is. I want the entire ship to be cleaned from top to bottom. Throw the bedding overboard, swab the cabins with vinegar, and by no means let any man near my cabin. The next day the boy died, and they wrapped his body in sheets and threw it overboard. It's never nice to throw a colleague to the fish, sharp-bearded Amraphel said, but it does mean more grain for the rest of us. Twelve. The captain's orders were followed to the letter, and the problem seemed to be under control, as for three days there was no sign of the pest. But then, on the fourth, Bull Milo was found unable to rise from his hammock, and eight hours later, died. That same evening, two more members of the crew came down with the sickness. The next day, another two. The day after, a full seven. These men, who regularly faced death in the form of battle with smiles on their faces, trembled before this invisible, virulent enemy. Some stained their throats with rum, others remembered prayers of their childhood, but strong and weak, drunk and sober alike, were ravaged. Men writhed in their hammocks. A few lay on deck, hollow eyes staring up at the blue sky. One, hallucinating, saw the ship enveloped in the flesh of a giant sea snail. Another, singing, said he was having a musical competition with demons. While some recovered, others did not. Within a week, a half-dozen crew members had been cast to the waves. 13. On a certain morning, Lagoverd knocked on the door of the captain's cabin. "'Do not come in,' was heard from within. A moment later, the captain showed himself. "'He has got the pest,' he said. Lagoverd did not reply. There was nothing he could say, and truly this world is as fleeting as a flash of lightning. She became delirious, and Bruerovich found it difficult to keep her in bed. He tried, in that brief period of time, to squeeze some answers from nature, to unweave its very fiber. He frantically studied his books, consulted his mind, ground together powders, made the girl drink water infused with sulfur, smeared her body with tar diluted with spirits, filled the cabin with vapors and smoke. Dozing off briefly, he imagined that thousands of hands were crawling towards him, pushing themselves against his lips, demanding their pressure, a frightful obscenity that transferred itself to inanimate objects when he awoke, glasses, table, gray-goose quill pen all begging him for his affection. 14. Her breathing was very weak. Her face appeared to be melting like a candle, stomach exposed, the mouth thereon wore an awful grin. Her large eyes stared at the captain, the pupils endowed with a bronze immobility. Then she turned her head away. He got up and left the cabin. His heels clicked against the boards, his steps steady. The few on deck went about their business in silence, the gentle splash of water against the hull. A bubble, a drop of dew. He stood on the bridge of the ship and gazed out over the water, an endless meadow, a vast blue-green carpet. The ship floated on the lonely sea. In the distance, a mass of dark clouds rested on the horizon, and his lips were set firm. 15. When he re-entered his cabin, he was surprised to find that she was not beneath her bedding, but rather sat on the floor completely naked, in an odd position, ankles locked behind neck, body covered by a thin, slimy film. "'You need to get back to bed,' Bruerovich said, approaching. 
The jaws on her stomach opened. She snapped at him, would not let him near her, and so he stood back, watched as she began to shiver violently, writhe, jaws now protruding from belly, stretching themselves forth and eyes migrating. Around her he noticed gobbets of flesh, toes, terminal members of the hand. What transformation is this? Gasping, she began to flop around the cabin, gills quivering, a deposit of sticky, yellowish gelatin left on the floorboards in her wake. The captain's right hand agitated, as if it had a volition of its own, wished to seek out a quill and take notes, but the convulsive situation before him made him see necessity, and so he called in the aid of a few men, and together they cast a net around her, dragged her on deck, a swirl of tempestuous movement. "'It wants water,' Lagoverd said. Captain Nikola Bruerovich was silent for a moment, and then gave the order, watched as the load was hoisted to the gunwale, and a moment later, with a splash, the object fell into the blue. A glistening flash, and she was gone, lost in that expanse which might be called the largest of teardrops. But there was no time to recite poems, no time to sing deep ballads of passion for freedom or dolorous life. Ship to port, Captain, a frigate! Flag? English. How many are we? Forty-seven. The captain turned to Lagoverd. You think we can take her? he asked. I do not know, but I would not mind killing a few Englishmen. And you shall. the high seas. This story didn't go where I expected it to. Well done, Mr. Connell. And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing it and no selling it. If you are feeling generous, please consider donating a little something. The buttons are easy to find on our website, and everything goes into the pot. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy, keep smiling, and keep those beverages topped up. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.